Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Gina Calabro, and I um, want to start by just having our esteemed retired judge who is on the panel today introduce herself. I know she's rolling her eyes, she's, but Kendrick, why don't you introduce yourself first? Thank you to everyone. We don't, we can't see you. You can just see us, uh, but I'm actually delighted to be on this. I love doing fundamentals courses and um, hopefully meeting or helping answer some of your questions as you are joining the family law world or um, just wanting to brush up on your skills in the family law ward, world. I'm sorry. So my name is Susan Rickey. I was a probate and family court judge for 21 years from 1993 until 2014. I retired in 2014. I've been doing divorce mediation uh, and arbitration and conciliation since that time. Um, but I love to talk about post-judgment because I get a lot of those types of cases uh, to mediate because people... It takes a long time to go back to court to have post-judgment contempts and modifications, et cetera. It's not quite as quickly as uh, as the judges or trial counsel tells you, oh, you can just always file a contempt. You can always file a modification. It takes a little bit longer than that. So hopefully Gina and I can give you some tips today and answer some of your questions today about how to prevent some of having to go back for contempts or modifications or how to make it a little bit easier. So thank you, Gina, for asking me to be on the panel. Sure, and my name is Gina Calabro. I'm a partner at Rick Jones McBride and Mickey, which is a law firm in Needham, which specializes, or I should say, things family law. I've been practicing for just about 20 years. I'm delighted to be on the panel today with Judge Ricky. And um, we are going to be talking about a variety of post-judgment issues so we'll start with talking about how do you sort of, you've gotten to the point where you either have a judgment from the court or you have your separation agreement or your other agreement for judgment that's been approved. What do you do next? And so we'll talk a little bit about implementing the agreement or judgment and about the division of retirement accounts and some other sort of post-judgment types of uh, to-do list items. And then we will talk about contempt matters, also known as enforcement matters. And lastly, we will talk about modification actions. So I'm going to jump right in and Judge Ricky, please feel free to jump in um, if anything I say, you know, you want to elaborate on. So the first thing that I do after, I'm going to use a divorce as an example. The first thing that I do after I get folks divorced is I always have a conversation with my client about whether they need assistance in getting organized. So I often will offer to have um, someone in my office create a punch list or a task list for the client because there are often many things that need to be done under the separation agreement. And you don't want to get off on the wrong foot after the parties have finally resolved their matter by things being sort of um, not done properly. And then, you know, people have finally come to resolution and you don't want there to be any sort of ill will after that because... Um, because the task list items are not getting done. So I frequently will kind of offer that in the first instance. Parties oftentimes have a hard time counting. Like, you know, our agreements will say you need to do something within 10 days or 30 days. And even that can be tricky for, for litigants. And so um, it's nice to give people sort of a task list with dates, et cetera, so that they can get organized. A um, couple of other things that we frequently see that need to be done. So one is the division of retirement accounts. And so sometimes if we're talking about dividing um, non-qualified plans, like an IRA, for example, the parties are able to just put instruction in with the institution holding the IRA for transfers to be made. And that's, that's fairly easy. But sometimes when you have a qualified retirement plan that needs to be divided, the parties need to obtain what's called a quadro, um, which is shorthand for qualified domestic relation order. And so um, the most common example we see would be a 401k or maybe a pension where if that account is going to be divided in some way, you need to go through the process of obtaining a quadro. I never attempt to draft these things myself. I always outsource the drafting of a quadro to, um, to a third party who kind of specializes in the drafting because the process can be pretty involved. And if you don't draft the document correctly and in accordance with the plan's rules, the plan will reject the document. And so it's much more efficient from my perspective to 
put into your agreement that you're going to use, you know, X entity to draft the quadro. And so after the agreement is approved, typically it's a process where you're providing certain information to whoever's drafting the quadro, a copy of the relevant part of your agreement, a copy of the judgment of divorce, um, statements showing the balance in the account for whatever date you're using as your division date in the uh, in the separation agreement. And then that will be drafted and typically sent to the plan administrator for pre-approval without you really having to do anything. And then whoever's working with you on drafting the quadro will let you know when they're, um, when the quadro is ready to be approved by the court. When it's ready to be approved, then the lawyers typically assist the parties because a motion needs to be filed asking the court to approve that quadro. And so you file a copy of this joint motion to approve along with the, um, the domestic relations order with the court. Two things that are important there to know. Number one, those are 99% of the time allowed administratively. So this is something I always explain to clients because they get worried about, what do you mean? Are we going to have to go back to court? We have to file something else with the court? So fear not. It's not something where you typically have to go to court to get a quadro approved. Um, the other thing that's important to know is that there is almost always an addendum that gets attached to the DRO that has to go to the plan administrator that contains very sensitive personal information, such as social security numbers of the parties. That addendum does not get filed with the court when you file a copy of the DRO with the court for approval. You hold on to that addendum until the quadro has been approved and the entire thing, meaning the court order, a copy of the domestic relations order and the addendum then gets sent off to the plan administrator for processing. So just important to know because um, these filings are part of the public record and part of the public file and they contain sensitive information to the parties. Um, and so you don't file that. Um, that's just a quick sort of summary on, on quadros. Another thing to be mindful of is Real estate deeds, oftentimes people are conveying real estate in a divorce, maybe from one party to another if they're not selling the property. So I always like to try to have deeds prepared prior to um, signing the separation agreement so that they can be signed at the same time. But very often after you're kind of done with the divorce, there will either need to be deeds that need to be drafted, deeds that need to be executed. Sometimes they need to be held in escrow because perhaps you've agreed that the deed will not be recorded until something happens, um, some, such as a refinance, for example. And so you need to make sure just as a practitioner that you sort of have a process. So in our office, I use the same person for all of my deeds. We have a system for where we keep deeds that we're holding in escrow. Um, things like that are important. Another thing just to be mindful of is if you know that you're going to need a deed after the case is over and it is for a piece of real estate that is out of state, make sure that before you sign your separation agreement, you check with someone in the state to find out what exactly needs to be signed. Because sometimes you will find out that in a different state, there are different requirements in order to convey property. And so I think it can be really helpful, especially if you have parties who are very difficult and don't get along well, to just make sure that your agreement accurately reflects what actually is going to need to happen post-divorce in order for the property to be conveyed. Um, and then the last thing I would say, just from the sort of general implementation of the agreement piece, is that I always make want to make sure that my clients, when the process is over, kind of have a little short list of what other professionals they need to involve in their lives if they have not already involved those professionals previously. So for example, um, in our separation agreements, we revoke estate plans that may have been made during the marriage. So it's very typical in your boilerplate to say, I'm revoking my healthcare proxy, my powers of attorney, my prior wills, et cetera, because you're getting a divorce. So I always like to make sure that my clients know and I remind them because they may not remember, you revoked your estate plan. You need to get an estate planning attorney if you wish to set up a new estate plan. And I have a list of names I provide. Um, other professionals would be things like financial advisors, uh, accountants, perhaps. Um, if people have an obligation to obtain life insurance as part of the agreement, well, you want to make sure that you're on top of people about that. I, you know, there are people who sell life insurance that you can connect them with. If someone knows that their health insurance is going to be terminated when the divorce is final, perhaps if their ex-spouse has a self-insured plan, 
there are brokers who can work on the health insurance piece. So, um, so those are the other types of professionals that you just want to have in your network so that you can provide needs to your clients. So, um, Judge, anything to add on that piece of things? Excellent. Thank you, Gina. I just want to, um, from the perspective of the bench, add a little couple of comments. We're presuming that everyone that is uh, on as our guest on the panel today were the attorneys that either drafted and represented the parties and drafted the separation agreement or tried the case and received a judgment of divorce in the mail from the court. So there's two ways, of course, you know, to get divorced. Either there's a separation agreement which you go before the judge for approval, it's incorporated into a judgment of divorce, or there's a trial and the judge writes a judgment of divorce, which you get in the mail. So there's, you may not have been counsel at that time. You may be hired after because the attorneys are unhappy with their trial counsel, trial counsel, or, or the uh, negotiated counsel's tired of the client, whatever it is. But Gina is presuming that she has worked with these clients throughout her client throughout the whole process, but you may not have had that. So you will need to come up to speed a little bit and probably speak to prior counsel, to trial counsel, or to uh, negotiating counsel. Uh, and of course, review the agreement or the judgment to make sure. But I love the idea about a punch list, Gina, and a calendar, because if you think about it, most separation agreements, negotiations are going back and forth and back and forth. And many of them are solved are solved and signed at the court that morning. So you've negotiated that somebody has 30 days to refinance and then it goes to 45 days and then it's finally signed at 60 days. So the parties are at court. They're negotiating a full separation agreement. You know, the courthouse is not their place. It's our place. We're used to being there. But I think a calendar of what needs to be done, our punch list, Gina, is incredibly helpful because there's so many deadlines and times and you don't want your client parties to miss anything and to be held in contempt for not doing it. You may need extensions. You may say that the parties are going to hire a person to to prepare this qualified domestic relations order to divide their 401k or whatever it is, divide their pension or whatever it is. And they're going to do it within 30 days, but they're not able to get it within 30 days. And it's no one's fault. They had every intention of doing it, but sometimes there has to be agreed upon extensions for getting certain things done because they're out of your control. You can't control how long it's going to take a plan administrator to approve the qualified domestic relations order before there is even a joint motion to approve the qualified domestic relations order that hopefully the judge will sign promptly and send back to you without a hearing. So many things even that are time sensitive in your agreement or judgment are unable to be met through no fault of anybody, no one having any misconduct. It just happens. You just need to agree on between counsel to agree on some extensions for those just so that everybody's on the same page. Uh, I think that other professionals, Gina, that we should perhaps, there may be that the parties are going to find a child psychologist or a child therapist for their children. And that's not an easy task to find right now. And so that should also be something that jointly that they that goes on the checklist or punch list of things that may be accomplished. If the parties have agreed to, for example, a parent coordinator, you're going to need to sign a contract with the parent coordinator, engage the parent coordinator, et cetera. That's another type. The one that the court sees coming back so often on post judgments, whether they're a separation agreement or a judgment written by the court, is that one person wants to purchase the equity in the house or is receiving the equity in the house, but there's a mortgage and the person not receiving the equity in the house wants to get off the mortgage, of course, because you take the fair market value minus the mortgage and the equity goes on Gina's side because she's receiving the house but Gina's former spouse wants to get off that mortgage liability. And so where you say that Gina has 30 days to refinance, that may be adequate or may have been adequate, but I think borrowing is very, very different now. 
I don't think it is so easy to refinance, of course, even without the crazy rates that have gone up. So there may need to be a little wiggle room. So refinancing and refinancing timeline, I think generally you should have even before you went to court with a separation agreement or a trial, contacted a lender to see if you could refinance. Gina should have contacted her lender, Bank of America, who holds the mortgage and said, do I qualify? But sometimes people haven't done that. And it might take a little longer. So you need to find out those types of things. Um, and if Gina cannot refinance to get her former husband off of the mortgage, or I can't refinance, I shouldn't be picking on you, Gina. If I can't refinance to get my soon-to-be ex-husband off the mortgage, then there has to be a fallback because then the property has to be sold and the equity divided in some way. And it has to be, of course, in comporting to the dollar amount or the percentage amount of the equity. Because if you sell, if I sell my house to Gina as a third person, of course, the bank is going to get paid for the mortgage and the home equity line if there is one first, and then the parties will get the money. So you're going to assume that I can refinance, but you shouldn't assume that because I would not have been pre-qualified. The bank may require for me to refinance and let my ex-husband off, that I have six months of income, six months of support, six months of alimony, whatever it is. So find out those things before you even go to court and so that you have the correct timelines. Because if I really try to get refinanced and I can't within the 30 days, I don't want the property to be sold. I might just need a little extra time and the other side might not agree because they want their money and they want to go out and buy something. So those are things that you should do before you even go in for the judgment. But if you haven't, find out about them very quickly because they are time sensitive. Right. So that area. And the next thing we were going to talk about are enforcement matters, also new contempt. So I'm going to let you take it away, Judge, and I'll jump in. So if you have drafted a perfect separation agreement, everyone on this screen, hopefully you will have, the hope is that you never, the judge never ever wants to see the clients again, not because of anything negative, but that an agreement is so well written or a judge's judgment after a trial is so well written that you have anticipated things that could possibly come up and that there is nothing ambiguous and everything is unequivocal and everybody understands what their responsibilities and rights are in their judgment or separation agreement. But that's not real life. That's in a perfect world that a judge would write a perfect decision that could cover everything and no one would ever have to come back in after the judgment and they would live happily ever after as divorced and separated parents and parties and spouses. But that's not how life happens. And sometimes persons choose not to or are unable to meet their obligations under a divorce judgment or any judgment, judgment of modification. It doesn't matter under any judgment. And so I'm not getting my child support or I'm not getting my parenting time or someone has not refinanced and has not listed the property for sale. So what do they do? They have to file a complaint for contempt. Complaint for contempt is a form that you fill in where you must list the date of the judgment that you are saying that the defendant has violated the order on, by December 1, I was supposed to refinance and it is now January 1 and I have not gotten my money and I am still on that mortgage and I cannot go buy something else. Or I was supposed to receive child support every week, every Friday or once a month, and I've not received my child support. Or I'm supposed to have parenting on a 225 and I haven't seen my children. And so I have to file a complaint for contempt. You must have a valid order or judgment to file a complaint for contempt. And that's what it will say. First line is I'm the plaintiff and I am saying that the defendant, my spouse, has not obeyed the order or judgment and you must type in the date. Oral promises to do something are not enforceable. 
what you hope was in a judgment or how you interpret it is not enforceable. It is what is written in the judgment or in the separation agreement that makes it enforceable. There are two types of contempts that you can file. It's actually the same form. It says complaint for civil contempt or complaint for criminal contempt. And before this session, Gina and I were quickly researching about the difference because there are so few complaints for criminal contempt filed that I wanted to make sure that I was going to be properly explaining it to you. With a criminal contempt, the plaintiff is asking that the defendant be punished, not that the judgment be enforced and that I get what I was supposed to get and that the defendant pay up the child support, list the property for sale, give me my parenting time, whatever it is, but that the if it's a criminal contempt that you are filing or your client is filing as the plaintiff, all you want is those that defendant punished. If there is a criminal contempt, of course, like all criminal actions, there are more protections. The defendant will be appointed an attorney. In a civil contempt, the defendant is not entitled to free counsel if they cannot afford counsel. In a criminal contempt, because you are taking away somebody's rights and you're asking for them to be incarcerated, they will have counsel appointed. And more probable than not, there will be an evidentiary hearing. So if your client wants to file a criminal complaint for contempt and wishes for punitive incarceration to be the judgment of contempt, then be prepared that you're going to have an evidentiary hearing and prove that they knew about a clear and unequivocal order and that they willfully and knowingly disobeyed it. Now, many frustrated plaintiffs will say, I just want him to be put in jail. He never pays his child support. He never returns the children on time. He did it, it, it. I want him to be put in jail. I understand the frustration because there are defendants that are chronic defendants that keep repeating, not obeying the judgment. I understand that. But the criminal contempt will not get the plaintiff what she wants, which is the money or her time with her children. It will, and I would say to the plaintiff, you understand that if I incarcerate your former spouse for 10 days, 15 days, whatever, and I think it's up to 60 days, Gina, that you can incarcerate under criminal. I think you can, there's a time limit on what you can do in the probate and family court. I don't know. 30 or 60, I'm sorry, I apologize. I should know that, but I haven't done any contempts for a bunch of years, so I apologize. But we'll find out the correct amount and tell you the correct amount of time. Then that person, then the defendant's going to lose his or her job, et cetera. I understand the frustration, but I would suggest that you go forward on a complaint for civil contempt, that the plaintiff goes forward on a complaint for civil contempt. A, you can always seek counsel fees, that they be paid. B, you can always seek incarceration, but you can also always seek the remedy that the defendant will pay child support arrears of $500 a month until paid in full. And if he fails to do so, then there is a 10-day incarceration with a purge amount. So you can get the same result, but you can also get the remedy you want the remedy that the plaintiff may want is just throw them in jail. That really isn't helpful because then you're not getting your money and then you're not getting your time with your children or whatever it is. So I just suggest that you look carefully at the difference. 95% of complaints for contempt in probate and family court are filed as complaints for civil contempt because they want they want the court to coerce the defendant to do something, to pay, to deliver the children, to list the house for sale, to get the life insurance, to put me on the medical insurance, whatever they were ordered to do. So you can always request a motion for counsel fees on a complaint for contempt. There may be, you would have to file an affidavit of what your fees are with time billing of what expenses, time expenses and fees, service, et cetera. Courts 
are not incredibly generous if your hourly fee is $400 an hour and the the <clears throat> excuse me and the child support arrears are 2000 and you're seeking $4000 and $4000 may be really what it has required to go into court and that's the, that's the tough part is that you want to you need 2000 back which the judge is going to give you for unpaid child support but are you going to go in if you're not necessarily going to get counsel fees that's a really hard decision Gina, for, for discussion with your client, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on that because you have client contact. Of course, I don't. But that is something to discuss. It's often in the separation agreement, when you're drafting, just as a practice pointer, in the, in the boilerplate language, if someone is found in contempt, they will have to pay reasonable counsel fees of the plaintiff. That gives you double ammunition to get counsel fees. So if you are drafting a separation agreement rather than a trial where a judge is issuing a judgment, I think a, a safety gap, a safety precaution would be to put some language in the separation agreement. I'm sure you do, Gina, about if someone is found in contempt or needs to hire an attorney to enforce the agreement that their counsel fees are paid. So would you just address the fees a little bit for me, please? Also, there's the presumption with respect to no contempt for money that the court will enter an award for attorney's fees. But there's no guarantee that even if the court does that, it would be for the full amount of what's been incurred. But, but, you, but you should know that there is the presumption that fees will be awarded only though for money contempt. So if you have a contempt because there's been an issue with parenting time, for example, there is no presumption there. It doesn't mean you can't ask for fees, but there's not a presumption, which in theory the court is supposed to follow. I think that, you know, the contempt piece, there's always that cost-benefit analysis that we do with clients because clients do need to understand that the more money and attorney time gets sort of poured into a contempt, that there's you know, you're not necessarily going to get that returned even with a request for attorney's fees. And I find that I think most judges, um, if, if they do award fees, I, I, you know, I think that conduct has to be pretty egregious before a court is going to award someone all of the fees that they're seeking. Um, so I think that's part of the cost-benefit analysis. And frankly, sometimes if I have a former client that has a relatively simple contempt issue, I might even suggest to them that they represent themselves on the contempt because then they're not, you know, if it's, if it's not that much money where you say, okay, look, you might spend more money with me than even the money that's an issue. I might offer to walk the client through kind of what do they need to do? What do they need to fill out? It depends on the client, obviously. I have had some clients who are pretty um, capable who just go and represent themselves. And, you know, I might have a phone call with them beforehand to let them know what to expect. But I think that, with, a, with contempt matters, we have to be somewhat creative where the contempts are sort of the smaller ones. Um, the other thing that I often do with clients is we might have a conversation about kind of just keeping track of various contempt issues until there is enough at stake to make it make sense, right? So it's one thing if someone just stops paying their support order, and then your client may not have a choice because they rely on that support. And if the, other, the party who's not complying is just left to kind of to their own devices, they'll never make a payment, right? That's one problem. But sometimes it might be that there's a problem here or there where you say, look, let's just keep a log. Um, I find this often comes up like when you're talking about reimbursement for expenses, right? Well, they reimburse most of the expenses, but not these particular expenses. And it might be that you say, look, you're not going to file a contempt every time there's this type of issue. And so you, you wait. Now, judge, I don't know what your thoughts are on that because I've also seen some judges you know, some people argue, well, if you wait too long, then you've sat on your hands. And so now you've kind of sat on your rights and I'm not going to give you the remedy you're seeking. So there's a little bit of a balance there between constantly being in court, um, taking up the court's time on relatively small monetary issues, as opposed to waiting without a party saying like, well, now what? Now, now you're asking for all of this money. So where I don't have you been the whole time, right? Where have you been the whole time? That is a very tough balancing act. Yeah. First of all, the court is used to many, probably more than half of contempts being with pro se's for the very reason that Gina said. 
the council fee cost outweighs often, or it has been repeat so many times that the plaintiff cannot continue to pay council fees. And you're right, after two or three weeks, filing a complaint and running in every two to three weeks gets you labeled as a frequent flyer. And that's probably not what your client wants to be labeled at is someone that the clerk and the judge, because they're in constantly asking for more, asking for more. But I think you're right, Gina. If someone is not seeing their child and they let it go, let it go, let it go, or not, right? It could be anything or medical insurance payments, whatever it is. It's like courts open every day. Where have you been for a year? Don't come in and ask me now to, to give 12 months of makeup visits or makeup parenting time when mm-hmm. court has been opened and you haven't. So you will know your client. You will know their tolerance. I don't think you can run in for every little infraction, but I also don't think you should let it go very long. You file a complaint for contempt and the court tells you when you're coming in. A summons is issued, a contempt summons, which has to be served at the, upon the defendant. Often the defendant isn't living at the same place anymore. And it's difficult to get service often on on defendants because they moved out of the marital residence or you just don't know where they are anymore. Sometimes there has to be publication of them. So service is not always so simple in a complaint for contempt, but there has to be service. On the summons, it will tell you the hearing date. If you think you need an evidentiary hearing with a complaint for civil contempt, and you may, and you should never shy away from that, but please don't expect that on your contempt hearing date that you're going to get an evidentiary hearing. Again, I haven't been on the bench for nine years, but when I was on, you had to do 20 contempts a week. So either you would stagger them out for a morning, and then that would bump your trials up, or some judges just do a whole full day of contempts. When you arrive there for your contempt hearing, generally you're sent to the probation department to try to mediate it anyway. They work with DOR to find out if any payments have been made by the defendant that haven't yet been credited. They try to sit down and to settle the contempt and to come up with an agreement to be incorporated into an order or a judgment. But if that doesn't work, of course, you go into the courtroom and there's a hearing. But the hearing is generally just the two pro se's or the plaintiff's attorney or both parties and one or two attorneys. If you need an evidentiary hearing, you should ask for that that morning and not sit there all day thinking you're getting one because a judge never knows what time they're going to have on that day and how long to get you know, 15 of the 20 settle in probation that day, or the plaintiff doesn't show up, or they've been already settled before, then the judge may be able to hear you on an evidentiary hearing, but you can't promise that. So if you need an evidentiary hearing and you need witnesses or just because you need findings written for a judgment, and the only way a judge can write findings, of course, is if there is an evidentiary hearing, then you're probably not going to have your hearing that day. So be prepared for that as well. The other thing I just want to mention on the contempt is that the judge also has the authority to modify the underlying judgment or even out of parties request if they wish. So sometimes when a contempt is being um, adjudicated or ultimately the underlying judgment were being modified in some way. So that's just also important to know that's not the vehicle that I typically would use and we're going to talk about modifications next. That's not, I don't view that as the vehicle to use if you want the modification, but just understand that. And judge, I don't know how often you would do that when you were on the bench, but you know, you have the ability to do it and I, I've seen it happen. So um, just something- Sometimes you have to do it, right? I mean, somebody's under a $400 a week child support order and they've lost their job and their unemployment's $180 a week. So you have to modify it. You yeah. can preserve the arrears and have a payment status for the arrears, but you can't continue a $400 pen. You can do whatever you want, I guess, but it's not fair and reasonable to continue a $400 a week order when somebody's only source of income is unemployment compensation. So often the judge will modify it and that's a risk to the plaintiff about going in. You're absolutely right, Gina. You might just wanna hang on to that 400 until they have the income and the ability to pay it before you would go in on that. And that's a strategy. 
that you have to think about when you're meeting with your client before filing. Then I was looking to see if anyone has any questions. So folks, I just want to remind you that we do have the ability to ask questions. You can post them to us. Um, we can also wait for your questions to the end, but I'm looking at the topic and we probably need to move on to modification actions. People should feel free if they have questions to put them in the chat and we'll do our best to address them. So, um, so, no, no, ready for modifications. All right. So, modification actions, I think we're both going to sort of tackle. I think we should just have a conversation a little bit about that. Um, I, I guess just generally, first, number one, what is a modification action? So, folks, a modification action is basically where you are seeking to have a judgment or order of the court, I mean, typically a judgment modified. Um, and the legal standard is different depending on what the issue is. So most of the time, the legal standard is that there has to have been a material and substantial change in circumstances sufficient to warrant modification of a particular provision of um, a judgment that incorporated a separation agreement. Be mindful that parts of your divorce agreement, your separation agreement that survive the, the um, judgment or that under the law are non-modifiable, such as your asset division, are not going to be things that you can you can deal with on a modification action. But any child-related matters typically are modifiable, and any matters in your separation agreement that you chose to merge will be potentially modifiable. So the standard is normally that there has to be a material and substantial change in circumstances, unless we're talking about child support. So just briefly on that, um, under the Morales case, Basically, there is language that says that if there's an inconsistency between the child support guidelines and what is currently being paid, then the, the parties you know, can review that. So it doesn't have to be material and substantial in order for it to be something that can be put before the court for review and modification. So that is slightly different than the standard that you would use when you're talking about modifying the alimony, when you're talking about modifying parenting plan, um, custody, Etc. So that's the anything to add on the standard judge. You know, when you are counseling your clients before they sign a separation agreement, or when you are even trying the case, there is this don't worry about that. You can always go back in and seek a modification. Now, there is never a modification of property division. Property division is one and done. Property is valued on the date of divorce. It's not necessarily 50-50 divided. It's equitably divided. But once property division is done, property division is done. So for in my example earlier about refinancing, if your agreement said that Gina has to seek to refinance within 45 days, but doesn't say what happens if Gina is unable to refinance within 45 days, then property division is one and done. And you're sort of in limbo. So you cannot modify property division. You also cannot modify provisions in a separation agreement that the parties have agreed to survive, meaning it's not modifiable. So the parties each waive alimony from the other and that provision survives versus merges. All children's issues always have to merge. So even if the parties mistakenly or counsel mistakenly says they survive and are not modifiable, the parties cannot bargain away the rights of their children. Children are entitled to support. Children are entitled to time with their parents, with each of their parents. Children are entitled to college in some circumstances, et cetera. So any children's issues, whether it be decision-making, whether it be where the children live, whether it be support, whether it be their expenses, whatever it is, those are always modifiable, but there must be a change of circumstance. And so when you are initially negotiating the agreement or trying the case, don't just say, don't worry, we can always come back in and do that at a later time. That's modifiable. It is not so easy to modify because there must be a substantial change of circumstance, not something that you should have thought about and talked about, but didn't and kicked the can down the road because, and you cannot, part, you can't anticipate everything with children. How do you know 
what's a, what a four-year-old, how a four-year-old, what their needs are going to be. And I don't mean financial because we have child support guidelines, but how do you know what a four-year-old's needs are going to be as far as parenting time, et cetera, tutoring, whatever special ed they have, medical needs they have. The difference between four and eight, the difference between eight and 12, the difference between 12 and 16, amazing, right? Amazing. So of course you cannot anticipate everything, but hopefully you will put it processes into your separation agreement of different stages of the children's lives and how the parties will meet and try to discuss them and come to an agreement. And if they can't, then they can always seek a com they can always file a complaint for modification. A modification is filed by saying that this was a judgment on this day. This is what the judgment said. The substantial uh, the substantial change has been, substantial material change of circumstance has been, and then what you are seeking for the change. It is like any other complaint that gets in the queue. Generally, you will go back to the same judge as you had. You get your docket number, you're assigned a judge. If that judge is there, it will probably be the same judge that issued the judgment of divorce, if they're still around. Um, and because they would have had some history, but there will be a pretrial on it. There, you'll have to file it. You'll have to serve it. You don't get a date. The court will assign you a pretrial. There'll be a trial date. And then there will be waiting for the judgment to come down. I think I am being generous. And this is in no way being disrespectful to my sitting colleagues. It will be a minimum of a year from when a complaint for modification is filed. So you would even get a trial and a decision. So if it is about what school the children go to in September of 2023, I think you're a little too late to tell you the truth, right? I mean, it take, it's like anything else. You just wait for your trial date because there's so many thousands of other people before you. And to be honest, Many judges do not see the urgency of modifications that they do with getting out their original judgments. They don't want to back up an original judgment, whether it be a paternity divorce or whatever it is, because those you need something to get the party started, being that initial judgment. And a modification is asking for a change. You can seek a temporary... Gina, want to jump in here? Actually, you read my mind because what I was going to say is this is a perfect segue into talking about temporary orders because when you mentioned this, the school issue, for example, I mean, what ends up happening sometimes is that the issue becomes forced because it's time sensitive by um, by a judge, you know, having a hearing on temporary orders. And then it's a very imperfect way because it's not a trial. There's no evidence that's provided where a judge might have to decide on a motion for temporary orders what you know, what to do about an issue that's time sensitive like that, which is not ideal. But I find that that when that type of thing happens, you know, or there's a, you know, a removal action and someone's starting a job in 60 days, you're never going to get a trial before the 60 days are up. And so it brings us to, and I'll, I'll let you pop back on it, Judge, but it does bring us to the question of um, how do you decide whether you're going to file a motion for temporary orders on a modification action? I find that I, judges tend to be very reluctant to award to a litigant the um, ultimate relief that they're seeking. Sometimes if it's a financial issue, it might make sense to order or, or award some interim relief. But if we're talking about, you know, you filed a mod and you're asking for X, and then you go in on a motion for temporary orders asking for X, I think that that's a hard um that's typically a hard sell to the court. Courts are incredibly reluctant, Gina, to give temporary orders on modifications because you have therefore presumed that the plaintiff has prevailed and that they have met their legal standard, that there has been a substantial and material change of circumstances. And to do that, you have to write findings of fact. Temporary orders on modification, just like judgments of modification, require findings of fact and actually would require a hearing because if it's just representations of counsel, nobody's cross-examined, nobody's examined. So how do you really write findings of fact? So I'm going to use two examples, one being a money complaint for modification. Mom or dad has a child support order. They lose their job. They're on unemployment. I would be more, I think courts would be more likely to do a temporary order with a review that somebody has to do a job search 
that they are going to temporarily reduce it. They're not going to get rid of the arrears, that the $400 is going to continue, but it only has to be paid at $80 now because $80 is the guidelines of unemployment at 180. I'm picking a number out of the sky. Yeah. But that that will all be subject to change after a final hearing. If it is a change of custody, if it is something that really has to be proven that there's a change of circumstances, absent some parent being in a drug treatment, so they're unavailable, a parent being incarcerated, so they're unavailable, just that one of the parents doesn't like the custody, whether it's legal or physical, and they want to change because they're fighting all the time and they're in constant conflict and somebody's returning the child late, yada, yada. Judges would be more are very, very hesitant to do those temporary orders without even with an evidentiary temporary order hearing. There's not a lot of time for evidentiary hearings on contempts or on modifications for temporary orders because you're competing with the underlying complaint for paternity or divorce as far as kids and property division and support. And you're competing with contempts and modifications. So it's very unlikely that you are going to get a temporary order except by agreement, working in probation or just excellent negotiating by counsel. Judges are very hesitant. The main reason being you're saying, okay, you've already proven your case to the plaintiff and they haven't proven their case. Mm -hmm. So I think like a year, year and a half, Gina, by the time you get a pre-trial, I think it's yeah, a I, trial and a decision. I have, it's been a good year, the ones I have. It, you know, so let's talk. So here's another piece because I'm looking at the clock. We have about 10 minutes left. One thing that I think bears noting is this assumes that you have a contested issue that the parties are not able to resolve and they need the help of the court. So one thing that is important to know um, is that we do have supplemental probate court rule 412, which allows people who have a modification agreement in many instances, to be able to get that approved through a process that's completely administrative. So I just thought it would be helpful just for everyone to be made aware of the rule. So if you look up Supplemental Probate and Family Court Rule 412, this is for uncontested actions to modify a judgment or an order. So generally speaking, the process is that you would create your, you know, draft your modification judgment. If it's related to a financial issue, the parties complete financial statements. And then there are um, some pleadings that get filled out. So there's a joint petition for modification. There's still, I believe, an affidavit disclosing care of custody proceedings. And um, the packet can be filed with the court with a request that the matter be allowed administratively. And I have had pretty good luck um, in many instances with that process. And so, um, you know, if, if the parties decide that they want to modify child support and they agree to a number and file everything appropriately with your guidelines, your financial system, et cetera, it's possible the court can look at all of that and allow it administratively. And if the court has questions, then they can call you in and say, well, we need to have a hearing because I have questions. But that's something that you should definitely familiarize yourself with because, um, number one, it's more cost-effective for your clients. It's more expeditious if you reach an agreement to get a judgment. and it, takes, again, to let, you know, we need to always be thinking about judicial economy as well. There's no reason to be in court if it's something that can be resolved and handled administratively. It takes the judge far less time than having to see you in person. So if you look at that rule, there's a there's a list of, it's you know, the various things that can be modified, what the agreement needs to state, when you need to file your child support guidance worksheet, et cetera. That's rule 412. I had forgotten to say on your complaint for modification, you can seek when you get to trial a year later or you finally negotiate, you can seek the modification to be retroactive, that the child support should increase, should decrease, that whatever, retroactive back to the date of service of the complaint for modification. So when you file your complaint for modification and get your summons from the court, serve it quickly because that is the ticking and the tolling of how far the court can go back. The court cannot go and modify anything earlier than the date of service of the complaint for modification. And I think that that's important. Yes, and you should also know that's the rule for child support, but only the court has discretion if they want to go back further. I don't know how often they do, but there is a distinction 
or there is a hard and fast rule on child support, and it's a little bit murkier on alimony. So when talking with clients about retroactivity, I think it's just important, important to note that. Um, okay, we have about eight minutes left. Anyone have any questions? Judge, do you have anything? In the queue, there's none in the queue. Uh -uh. Let me just go over my notes though and think of, see if I... So please foresee when you're drafting your original judgments and separation agreements, try to foresee as much as you can. For example, college, as far as the children's expenses, because the expenses for a child at four are different than camp expenses when they're eight, which are different than before and after school expenses when they are older, tutors, driver's ed, field trips, proms, whatever. Try to foresee as many of those as you can and determine and to such hopefully decide on the division of them. Um, courts are hesitant to, I mean, courts can't foresee, but the parties can foresee. The court won't know your children at the time. You know, when you're getting a judgment of divorce and you're trying a case, it's a snapshot. We used to say that. Here's the photo of where this family is today. We cannot figure out, right? We can't determine what is going to be down the road, but the parents can. They know if they have a child that has some special needs or some sensitivities or whatever they are, whatever is special to that family. So try to foresee as much as you can about this particular family because the court at a trial can't do that. They're taking a snapshot of June 13th, and this is what this family is doing today, and I'm dividing today, and I'm coming up with the parenting schedule. But the parents can put so many, and the, the parties can put so many more processes in. So that's where the good lawyering starts, is that you've got a good product to start with. before. Yeah. So you don't need to come in on contempts as much or to come in on modifications as much. But life kicks in. Right. You can't anticipate everything. There's nothing wrong with filing it. But I don't want you to think you immediately the client comes in and they want child support repaid or for whatever or or I got laid off and I'm on unemployment. So I'm, I want to stop paying. It doesn't happen like that. You've got it right. It doesn't happen that quickly. And so whatever you can put into a divorce agreement will be really, really helpful. I don't think I have questions. Maybe we can let everybody go home early tonight for five minutes, a whole five minutes early, Gina. Aren't we nice? Yes, also seeing no questions as well on my end. Just thank you to the attendees. Thank you to the speakers. If anyone has a question, they'll feel free to. Going to be really fast as we wrap up. But again, just huge thank you to everyone and wishing everyone a great rest of the evening. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you to the attendees. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Noah. Bye. 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 Thanks.